I had a small little operation. Um, I actually had one employee. It was my younger brother. At the time, he was about six. Um, and uh, we operated out of my parents' front yard. Uh, and uh, it was a lemonade stand. It was a lemonade stand. We had, we had a lot of good stuff at our lemonade stand, though. Uh, we had um, cups and lemonade. We did have ice for a little while, but then, you know, that stuff doesn't last forever. And uh, I remember we, we actually only did it one time. Uh, we, we went out in front of a summer vacation, and I remember my grandma had given me like 20 bucks for a birthday or something. And I was like, man, I'm going to totally multiply this thing. So I go to the store, and I buy stuff for lemonade, and I spend all my $20, and we go, and we set up outside. And uh, we, we had all the basics, all the things that we needed. Um, see, a smart business person would know that on average, most adults who might be likely to buy lemonade are not driving by, you know, my house at 10.30 on a Tuesday morning in July. Most of them are at work. See, no one told me that. So we stood there in the morning, and uh, we waited, and we waited, and we waited. Nobody came, and we waited. And occasionally, like, a car would drive by, and you, you, you've done this. I'm judging you right now because you've done this. You've driven by the kid at the and you're like, oh, how cute. Did you buy lemonade? No, me neither. I didn't buy lemonade either. And neither did they. I'm like, come on, how could you say no to this? You know, we're, we're so cute. Selling lemonade. We sold no lemonade. Occasionally, my dad, who was, was at home at the time, he was like, he'd stick his head out the door like, you guys good? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Go back inside. Sold no, no lemonade. We had ice. It melted. It was getting hot. We began to drink lemonade. You ever do that? When you were a kid, you had a lemonade stand, you start drinking all the lemonade. Before long, we had not much product left, and we were about to just throw in the towel. And then I remember, I have no idea how long we were out there, but I remember this moment. It, it was, it's etched in my mind. It was a, it was a transitional moment for my, my business savvy. My, my cross-the-street neighbor, I believe his name was John. John owned his own um, lawn care business, and so he had come back to the house to pick up some supplies. And uh, he went in the house. And I didn't, even, I didn't even try to flag him down. We were, we were done. We were done trying to sell uh, ice cream. Ice cream. Be, ice, ice cream would have been great. That was our problem. Lemonade. We were done. But then John walked across the street, and we saw him coming. And we're like, what's happening? And like, we thought maybe we were in trouble. Like maybe we were like, you know, too far into his side of the street. I don't know. And like he walks over, and he's like, reaches in his pocket. He goes, how much is a cup of lemonade? And we're like, I don't know, 50 cent, 25 cent, whatever it was. He's like, cool. He reaches in. And, and he begins to dig. So we, we start to, uh, we're frantically, we're bumping into each other, like spilling lemonade everywhere. We're like, what do we do? We've never actually had a customer. So we give him the lemonade. It's like all up our arms, dripping down the cup. And it's like, he's like half full. And there's a, you know, our thumb is poking through the styrofoam. Here. And he's like, oh, thanks. And he reaches in and he grabs a $20 bill. And he hands it to us. And I'm thinking, oh, shoot. Like, I don't have any change. Like, this is not an option. And he goes, keep the change, guys. I know how hard it is to start your own business. And then he somehow muscles down that lemonade and walks back across the street. God bless John. God bless that man. I tell you what, we packed up shop. We were like, dude, calling it, cutting even, we're done. We like packed everything in. That was the first and last cup of lemonade that I ever sold in that business that I own. We folded up. Um, but we learned, we learned some good lessons. Uh, we learned, for example, that when you have a product, uh, location, 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 right? And my parents' front yard apparently wasn't it. And time, like it had been Saturday morning when everybody's out mowing their grass or taking their kids to a soccer game or whatever, like that might have been a better time, or like 5.30 or 6, like after work. 
wrong time. We probably had the wrong product because we probably weren't making very good lemonade. Like all these things add up. The, the bottom line is we didn't have a single game plan for what we were doing. We, we weren't headed. We didn't have any direct. Now, here's the thing. I, I say that because I think we all have some sort of story like that as a kid or maybe as, you know, you're like 35 years old. You're like, oh, location. Right. And you're still trying to sell lemonade. The thing about life is I think that a lot of us, we just crash through life like the 10-year-old version of myself. We, we just crash through life with no plan. We, we think we kind of know on the horizon what we'd like to achieve, but we just kind of crash, 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 and we just run through life. And then we find ourselves, while we're flying by the seat of our pants, we find ourselves confused and, and dismayed and, and, and lost many times. And so this, uh, this week, we're beginning a series today that we're just calling Game Plan. Game plan. We're using kind of a football motif because it's football season, but really, you know, it, it, could, it could be overlaid over any sport or any activity. You got to have a game plan. I've got too many friends who just rely on blind luck to get them through. And every now and then you wake up, you're like, hey, I did something okay today. But then other times you're just like, ooh, I don't know where I went wrong, but where I am right now is probably not where I need to be, and it's definitely not where I want to be. And every now and then, dumb luck is enough to get you from point A to point B, but it's no way to live. And it's definitely not the way that God wants to live, us to live the one life that he's given us. In fact, God has a plan. Maybe you do have a plan, but you realize as you think about it, maybe you've been uh, attending church for a while or, or you've even been a Christian for a little while and you realize, you know, the plan that I've been having for my life isn't actually necessarily centered in God. Maybe my plan is really centered on good, but not God. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like I'm doing good things. I'm not really like ruining the world. It's not a bad thing that I'm doing with my life. But if I really step back and evaluate, I can't say that God is really the driving force behind what I do and when I do it. So over the course of the next month or so, we're going to be studying through a great book, the book of Philippians. Philippians. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and break that thing out. Uh, we'll be in the book of Philippians today, starting in chapter 1. You can also look underneath your seats there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, maybe the Bible that you do have is kind of a, a version that's a little bit older and not very readable for you. Uh, by all means, grab a Bible before you leave. We give these Bibles away for free. Uh, but we're going to be in the book of Philippians. Philippians is in the New Testament of the Bible. The New Testament of the Bible is like the last third of the Bible. And uh, I think it's the 11th book of the New Testament. So just flip through, find the book of Philippians. We'll get there in just a second. And I think what we're going to find in this book, the book of Philippians, is a game plan for life. And not just a game plan for living good, but a game plan for living God's way. Philippians. You're going to want to take some notes this week because we're going to kind of uh, lay an, an uh, introductory level, a foundation for what the book of Philippians is and where we're headed. When you look at any book of the Bible, they weren't written in a vacuum. They weren't produced at a publishing house. Uh, each book of the Bible has its own unique story and context and time period and author, and they come from different places for different reasons. And so before we get into the study of the book of Philippians, it can be really helpful to actually see where the book came from. Uh, the book of Philippians was actually written to a group of new Christians in, uh, in what is modern-day Greece, but a city that was then called Philippi. I got a map up here I think I can show you. If you look at the top of that map, uh, you may notice this is the, the Mediterranean. Sea, and so down here, if you're not great with geography, this is Africa, that way is Europe, that way is Asia, okay? 
That's Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and then up in that little corner in the upper portion of Greece. That's Philippi. The Philippi existed uh, at this particular time during the height of the Roman Empire. And so, I mean, it was a hustling, bustling place. There was a lot of building going on. There was a lot of commerce. Uh, this wasn't cavemen, okay? These were very educated people. These were people with, with lots of sophisticated um, communication and government and things like that. Uh, the book of Philippians was, was written in about 50 A.D., 5050 AD, uh, which is about 2,000 years ago. And so that was a long, long time ago. Uh, but because of the height of the Roman Empire and what was going on, a lot of what was going on then is a lot like what we can relate to now. It was written by a guy named uh, Paul. We call him the Apostle Paul. We spend a lot of time talking about Paul because he wrote a good chunk of the New Testament. Most of them were books like the book of Philippians. Uh, and uh, the Apostle Paul has got a cool story of his own. I always try to give a little bit of piece of his story when I talk about him because it just shows the power of God. Uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, before he became a Christian, was a really uh, influential but legalistic leader in the Jewish religion. Uh, and he traveled around. And actually, his job was to, to persecute Christians. He would go to people's homes, he would find them, and if they wouldn't renounce their faith in Jesus, uh, he would oversee their execution. And this was a bad dude. He was very much a, a terrorist of their time. But this is amazing. When he meets Jesus, all of that changes. His whole life, his whole mindset changes, and he realizes that the message of Jesus is a message of love and truth and light and life, and it's the way that we connect with God. And so Paul goes from being this, this murdering uh, zealot of Jews, Judaism to the first Christian missionary to the non-Jewish world. Isn't that crazy, what God can do in a life? And so he's the person who wrote this book. Um, other things about uh, the, the, the book of Philippi, um, we, when we get to Philippi, what we get to meet are the first European Christians. Uh, because as the religion of Christianity uh, begins to move up around the Mediterranean region, when he lands in Philippi, it's the first European, European city that he lands in. And so I want to kind of give you a snapshot of the people he met there and how that went down. How did he start with that first church? It starts, uh, you can read it if you've got your Bible with you, or if you're one of those people who loves to find out, like, what can I read this upcoming week that'll be supplement to what we talked about today? You can read in the book of Acts. In chapter 16 is the story of how the church of Philippi came to be. So by all means, grab uh, your Bible this week and read Acts chapter 16. It'll be some great reading for you. It's a crazy journey. It kind of starts out when Paul uh, meets a, a lady who... Uh, named Lydia, and she is down uh, with another group of ladies, and she is actually a woman who deals in, in, uh, in cloths, and so she dyes clothing, and that's one, of her, that's one of the things she does, I guess that's her job, and when he meets Lydia, she is a Jewish woman. One of Paul's biggest strategies for getting into a new community is, as a Jew himself, he would see if there are other Jews in the community, and much like, I don't know, New York City or somewhere where you'll have you know, corners of each city that are kind of dedicated to different ethnic groups, the Jews would often congregate in one area of a city. And so he would go to those areas and he would try to tell them about Jesus because Jesus comes out of Judaism. So this group of Jews that he meets is led by a lady named Lydia. And he talks to her and he tells her about Jesus. And eventually she discovers that she believes in Jesus. She becomes a Christian, first Christian convert in Europe. Well, he moves on and he goes into the city of Philippi proper. And while he's in there, he sees uh, this slave girl. And the slave girl is, she's demon-possessed. 
Okay, and so he goes in with the power of Jesus, and he actually frees this girl from being demon-possessed. It's an amazing story. You should check it out. Now, that's a really cool thing. Like, if you happened to have been demon-possessed, and someone delivered you from that oppression of that spiritual, you know, turmoil in your life, that's, that's a great thing. The problem is she was a slave. She was not her own. She belonged to someone else. And the slave owner did not like the fact that Paul was going around meddling with her because she was someone who earned him money in various ways, as you might can imagine. And so Paul comes in, he frees her from this demon, and all of a sudden she's her own person. She's got her mind back. He doesn't like that. So what does the the slave owner do? do? He goes to the authorities of the city of Philippi, and he actually turns Paul in. You see this guy, Paul? Man, he's going around talking crazy stuff. He's messed up my slave. There's no telling what else he's going to do. And so while the authorities are going to research the subject, they arrest Paul. They put him in prison. So Paul's only been there a couple of days and he's in jail. Like he's making a great impression on the city of Philippi. He's in jail and while he's in there, he begins to pray and he's, and he's, he's just sitting there singing with the other people that he's with. And um, this amazing thing happens also. You can read about it in Acts chapter 16. God causes an earthquake. An earthquake. Yes, an earthquake. Like that seems like crazy. Like wait a second, this God is causing earthquakes, but it says that God caused an earthquake that allowed the, the bars of the prison that he was in to shake loose, the gate to rattle, basically unlock, so that now Paul, who was incarcerated, could just walk out. Paul does an incredible thing here, though. He doesn't leave. He doesn't leave the jail. He decides to stay. For whatever reason, he decides to stay, and it's really cool that he does. Because moving along, Paul meets another person in Philippi. See, being in prison, there was a prison guard. The prison guard comes to check the cells. He sees that they're all shaken loose. And he's like, oh my goodness, all the prisoners are going to escape. And he actually goes to kill himself. Because according to their law, if you're a prison guard and you let a prisoner free, your punishment is death anyway. He's like, I'm not going to deal with this. He actually goes to take his own life. But this cool thing happens. I imagine there's not you know, lights in there. It's first century. And so Paul, from the darkness, says, hey, wait, wait, wait. Don't do that. We're all still here. We didn't leave. The prison guard is very relieved because now he doesn't have to kill himself. And so he goes in and he's like, why? Why didn't you leave? Paul said, I, I want to tell you about something. What do you think he told him about? Jesus. He tells him about Jesus. The, the, the Philippian jailer is blown away at what he hears. And over the course of that night decides for himself, I'm going to become a Christian too. He takes Paul back to his house, tells his whole family about Jesus. And guess what? That night the whole family gets baptized. Now, this is the story of how the church in Philippi began. Wow. Wow, just these, these three quick stories of what God can do in a city. And what's crazy is Paul writes this letter much later after, the city, uh, after he's left the city of Philippi because the church continues to thrive. It says they all went back to Lydia's house and worshiped. And this becomes the first, not only the first European Christians, but the first European church. And now there are you know, thousands of churches all over Europe. And, and, and even America was largely, uh, you know, populated by Europeans who came over. And the religion, the Christianity comes over from churches over there. And to think that it all began with a lady who was washing clothes down by the water. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that amazing to take in? The book of Philippi, Philippians is pretty powerful. Um, Seeing moments like this in the Bible are pretty personal to me. Um, Over the last uh, five years, I've been involved in church planting. My family moved here several years ago to start this church. And I remember when we first moved here, we didn't know anybody. But we began to pray that we we would begin to meet people in the city that might have their hearts open to accepting God. And I remember meeting 
you know, our Lydia's and, and our slave girls and our Philippian jailers and the people that were the first people that we encountered. And some of you are, are here today, many, most of you are here today. Brian, who played drums this morning, he was one of the very first people who said, yeah, I'm in, I, I want to help. And, and then I think of, of Tori, who I just saw in the back right now. Uh, Tori is moving back to New York tomorrow. Oh, if you love Tori, you have to tell her goodbye. Um, but uh, she came to here for, for school and, and she didn't believe in Jesus. And to think that we, we met Tori, and, and Tori and I spent so many t- times just talking about God, and then she becomes someone who brings people to church herself and is active in her small group, and just to see the change that Jesus has in people's lives. And so when I see the beginnings of the church at Philippi, and many of you have those same feelings about our church, right? I mean, even if you've only been here for a couple of weeks, you're like, wow. I'm on the front end of a wave that God is a part of. And so when we see that, and we see what happens in the early church, I think we can resonate with that. And I think that it can give us comfort to know that God is still at work. He's still changing lives. He's still changing cities. He's still alive and well. Well, this, this time that, Romans, uh, that, that Philippians was written uh, was in a time, of course, before you know, the internet and, and uh, text messaging and cell phones and all that. And so the primary way to communicate with each other was through letters, written letters. So after Paul establishes this church and they get a fairly good feet underneath them, he moves on to start new churches, but he keeps in touch through what I imagine were probably dozens of letters. I'm guessing he wrote many, many letters to the Philippians. We don't have uh, any of those in existence. We have one, one remaining letter to the church at Philippi, and it's the book of our Bible called Philippians. And so as you read this book, it's not just an instructional textbook. It's a personal letter written from Paul to these people that he meets in this city. It would be like one of you moving away and then writing us a letter back to encourage us and how to live better for God and to teach us more. And we'll talk more about this next week, but actually Paul wrote lots and lots of letters while he was in prison. You can imagine how easy it was for a guy like Paul to go to prison because he would walk up into a city and he would begin talking about faith in someone who said he was the son of God and rose from the dead. And people were like, uh, sorry, we got our own religion now. And religion is very powerful in politics, right? <laughs> so Paul ends up thrown in jail. So he actually wrote this letter and many others while he was in prison. And, and I imagine while he was sitting there in his cell, he thought of his friends in Philippi. He thought of Lydia. He thought of the girl. He thought of the the jailer's family and he thought of the others that he's met while he's there but us people we we don't like to be told what to do we don't like to think uh, that we're not in charge we don't like uh, when we don't get the chance to make our own plans and so it might be that someone like Paul writes letters or someone like me or, or you know just so you know like I listen to teaching I listen to sermons I go to conferences I go to other churches when I'm on vacation like myself when we hear instruction and, and teaching about God and how we should live a lot of times we're just like don't tell me what to do like don't teach me don't don't tell me I'm my own person I'm going to do things my own way and so as Paul writes this letter he's listening listen I, I want you I want you to hear what I'm saying because I love you. And then I want you to put this into action as a game plan for your life. Okay, so that's just a big setup for the book of Philippians. We're going to be in the next couple of weeks. Now I hope that you've got an entry-level understanding of what the book of Philippians is, who wrote it, and, and, and who it was to. And not only was this kind of like a, a, an informational lecture, but it's also something that as we begin to play out the content of this book, it's going to shape the way that we hear it and the way that, that we see it. And so let's go ahead and dive into the book. If you've got your Bibles open or if you haven't yet, go ahead and open them up. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. Also, the scripture is going to be in the screen behind me. And we're just going to dive in at verse 1 for a few minutes this morning. This is how it starts. 
Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the elders and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a typical uh, opening to a letter. Basically, he says, Paul and Timothy. Timothy is his traveling companion, and so he's writing. It's like, this is from me and Timothy. We sign letters at the bottom nowadays. Uh, back in ancient times, they would actually put the name at the top. So as soon as you look at it, you're like, oh, I know who this is from. Makes it pretty easy. Uh, and then he says, this is to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, along with the elders and deacons. They're the leaders of that church. And so he's writing it to them. And then he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father. That's a very typical opener. But then in verse 3, he really gets personal. Like he dives right in. Knowing the underpinning of the relationships he have with these people, here this next few verses. In verse 3, he says, I thank my God. Every time I remember you. Doesn't that mean more knowing that he knows these people, that he went through prison for them, that he's through all kinds of other things? In verse four, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. See, it's been many years since those first meetings with Lydia and the girl and the jailer. And I'm sure there were dozens of other Christians by this time. And Paul is remembering them fondly. He's just remembering the moments, the times that they sat around a table and ate a meal, the times that they went out and they played with the kids, right? It's, it's just church. It's his church family. He's remembering them fondly. God had started something in those people. And I love what he says. Don't miss verse 6. It's crucial to this whole book. In verse 6, he says, and being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, will carry it out into completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I don't know where you are with your faith right now. It's kind of a personal thing, but I do know that you're here this morning. So that means that you're probably curious or exploring, or you're very strong in your faith. But if you're somebody who's just checking things out, maybe this is your first time at church, or you've only been for a couple of weeks, I, I want to I look at this verse as something that can be encouraging to us. Verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will follow it to completion. God is a God who does not leave us hanging. In fact, if you're here right now, I've got a theory, and I think it's pretty strongly supported by what I've seen in the Bible and in, real, and in life, is that if you're here right now, God has probably already begun a work in you. Something pulled your heartstrings and said, I need to try church. Or I need to go with my friend who's begging me to come to this thing at some elementary school early on a Sunday morning. I don't know why, but fine, I'm going to go. And my guess is that God has already begun something in you. And if not already, maybe right this minute, there's a moment God has begun something in you. And this is the thing that I want to give us all this assurance about God. He doesn't leave us hanging. When he begins to work in us, he sees it through. As long as we're willing to ride that train, he will see it through. And he will help us out. And he will give us the tools and the resources and the relationships that we need to see us through. And so my encouragement for you, for all of us, but especially if you're just checking out faith, is to don't jump off the train just yet. In fact, this is, my, this is my encouragement for you. Give it one more week. Come back next week. Come hang out with us one more time. Or shoot, finish this series with us. It's only going to be four weeks. Come hang out. See, you can say, hey, I, I tried a whole book of the Bible, and now, now I tried, right? The work that God begins in us, he will see through till completion. And then he keeps on going. In verse 7 and verse 8, uh, he talks about how much he misses and loves his friends. It's kind of personal stuff. Then when he gets to verse 9, we'll read that. He says this. He says, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best 
and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. He keeps saying the day of Christ. That's, that's, the, that's a, a, you know, a kind of a euphemism for this day when Jesus will come back and, and reclaim all the faithful people who have been. As he's building his kingdom and he's, he's, he's preparing heaven for us. It's a big theological concept. But that's the day of Christ. And he's saying, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. I mean, there's so much heavy, meaty stuff in just that little verse, but I want to take a look at a couple things. It's here that Paul hits on what I want to be our battle cry for this series. You see it sprinkled all throughout the book of Philippians. And here's how I'm going to say it. It's something like this, that God has a plan for your life, but it's up to you to live it out. God has a plan for your life, but it's up to you to live it out. That's actually one of the ways God loves us. He lets us choose. He doesn't program us like robots. He doesn't force us to do things. He wants us to love him by our choice. And the way he loves us is he gives us the ability to choose. He says, I'm praying for you to grow in your love and depth of insight. Why? This is why. Listen. So that you will be able to discern what is best. You see that? He's like, I, I've got, God's got a plan for you, but it's up to you to live it up. I want you to be able to discern what is best. And if we're real honest, we're not great at choosing what's best all the time, are we? We're just, we're not. Uh, we know that Big Macs are not good for us, right? But they're so good. <laughs> and electric large fry and the biggest drink. Like, give me a bucket of McDonald's Coke with like a big old like straw. I mean, just water hose will be fine. You know, and we're like, I know this isn't like great for my body, but we're going to do it anyway. And we're not great. And we, we know that like staying up too late is, is going to hurt us tomorrow at work. We're like, just one more episode on Netflix. Like I'm almost at the end of, of like season 19. I just got to, I got to watch one more video. And we know we're going to be nothing tomorrow. We're not great at making good decisions. And, and, and that's like the biggest thing that God wants us to be able to do is say, listen, I want you to be able to discern what is best. So that you'll be able to present yourself to, your, to me blameless and righteous. Jesus makes up the difference when we can't be perfect. The goal is not to be perfect, but the goal is to try our best to choose what's best. That's the goal. That's the game plan. He said, I've got a great plan for your life. And I will do the hard work of giving you forgiveness and forgiving you love and forgiving you uh, 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 grace. I'll give you these things. But you're going to have to make some of the choices. That's what our theme game plan is all about. It's the, it's the basic thing of a game plan. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge sports fan. I love sports. I just love sports. The Olympics was just not too long ago. I loved it. Every single day there were sports on. Sports I ain't never heard of. Like, what are you doing? At least someone can win and someone can lose. I'm excited about that. Uh, and it's crazy. Uh, I, by nature, I'm not super competitive. Like, I'll play with you. And then if I lose, I'm like, cool. I lost you one. Good job. Some people get super competitive. Uh, I, love, uh, I love football. I talk about it all the time. I'm a huge Dallas Cowboys fan. Like it or, or hate it. That's, that's my deal. I love the Dallas Cowboys. Um, and this time of year, you can watch football all week long. I mean, you can catch it Monday night, and then you can just catch up on it, the highlights throughout, and then, then you know, Thursday night rolls up. You can catch an NFL game Thursday night. You can go watch a JV game down at the high school on Thursday night. You can watch high school football on Friday night. You can go college football on Saturday. All day Sunday is football. In fact, we're playing football in London this morning, so I think a game started at, what was it, 9 o'clock or something? Like, it's all day football. And so, here's the thing. You, 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 can, you can see football all day long, uh, and you can look at any sport all day long, and, and whether somebody wins or somebody loses, what you've got to understand is that no respectable athlete goes into their game without a game plan. They, they've got some sort of 
they've got some sort of plan for how they're going to approach everything. Everything from the coach down to the third string person who may not ever see any playtime. The good teams are the ones who know what's going to happen. And here's, in essence, what a game plan is. Each person knowing how to make the right choices. When do I throw the ball? When do I catch the ball? When do I stop the clock? When do I run? When do we do this? When do we do that? And it doesn't have to be just sports. It was the same way with academics, right? If you're in college now, or maybe you've already done this, I mean, you don't just show up and get an A on the first day. No, it's the kids who study and the kids who stick with it. They're they're the ones who are going to get the good grades. And the kids who sleep during class and party on the weekends, they're not going to get the good grades. It's, It's the game plan. It's the same thing with the relationships. I can't be a great husband and just hope that it's going to be awesome. Like, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do and hope that I'm a great husband. No, like, it takes work, right? And it takes a plan. It's like, listen, we're not on the same page right now. We probably need to get away and talk about it. It's game planning. And it goes on and on through all the different facets of our life, whether it's our job, whether it's our finances, whether it's building uh, relationships with our neighbors, whether it's who I'm going to vote for or how the country is going to work. Like, all of this stuff hinges on the choices that we make and going in with it saying, I've got a, a plan developed. It doesn't have to be the perfect plan, but this is the the bottom line. Do I know what choice I'm going to make when faced with it? And what's going to guide that choice? And for us, guys, the choice is guided by a filter that says, does this help me live for Jesus and honor Jesus or not? Whether it's sports or academics or relationships or yes, the bigger parts of our spiritual life. Life's not a game. Life's not a degree program. It's not a, a title. It's not a relationship. Life is a gift. And it's a gift that we got from God, and he's given each of us only one. And we've got to do the best we can with it. We're going to talk about a lot of things as we study through the book of Philippians, but I want to lay the down, groundwork for, for the rest of our journey by looking at verse 9. He says, this is my prayer. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, this is my prayer, that you might be a great athlete. He doesn't say that. This is my prayer, that you'll be a great, uh, have a great career in engineering. It is not what he says. It's my, my, my prayer is that you'll make the most money and be respectable in your community. That's not his prayer. Look what he says. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what's best. And may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, of Christ, day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. It's Paul's prayer for the church at Philippi. It's my prayer for our church family today. That we will learn to grow and abound in love and understanding God so that we can learn to discern what's best. You know, it turns out I wasn't cut out for the lemonade business. Um, didn't. I ended up working at a diner later where I did make a lot of lemonade, but uh, we also sold burgers, so I think that, that got us by. But as I've grown up, I've also done a lot of other things, and, and, and I've learned that one of the keys to doing well in something is to set up filters for yourself. Not only knowing uh, what I should do, but what I shouldn't do. And, uh, you know, with the lemonade stand, I probably shouldn't have set it up on that day at that time with that whatever, Right? And in some of the relationships I had, I probably should have just never said hello. (laughs) And when filters become the way that we start to gauge our decisions, we can start to learn to discern what's best. And so um, we're going to get to this later as we study through the book of Philippians. But as I close out today, I want to fast forward to 
It might be one of the most popular phrases from the New Testament, like verses. It's definitely one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And it's going to be found in Philippians chapter 4. Later we're actually going to really dive into this passage. But just for today, what I want to say is this. um, That if we were to take some time to evaluate our life, and if you look through all your decisions, whether it's your time, your finances, your relationship, your, uh, your faith, your career goals, your life goals, all these things. If we were to begin to, to set these things up and run them through a filter, I think a lot of times we'd be like, well, well what filter? Like, what filter? Like, is this, you know, it should just, there be just a code of, of, of morality? Like, can my, me and my friends sit together and decide, okay, what is, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable? We just, like, sit our friends in front of Fox News, let them discern truth from evil? Like, is that, is that the plan? Like, what are we going to do? Like, and so the cool thing is that God has given us a filter. He's given us a lot. But in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, he gives us one of the most concise filters that I think I could point you to. And what I would ask you to do is read through this and begin to run each point of your life through these things. Let's look at it together. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. He says, finally, brothers and sisters... Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Eight ideas. There's eight of them. Eight ideas. And when making choices, if we could make each choice, running it through this filter, is it true? Is it noble? Is it right? Is it pure? Is it lovely or admirable? Is this thing excellent and not like excellent, you know, but like, no, is it is it gonna lead to excellence in my life based on what God has for me? Is it praiseworthy? Not like the world's gonna look at us and be like, good job, but can God look at us and go, that's praiseworthy. That's good. That honored me. If the answer to any of those questions is, no, I don't think it is that, let's simplify things and go, well, we don't need to do that. It's a filter. A lot of times as a teacher, as a preacher, I feel a pressure, and it's, it's not your fault, it's my fault. I feel a pressure to come here and say something that's going to change everybody's life. You know, I'm just going to say this thing. It's going to change your life. This is what you should do. Let's all line up and follow the leader. And then if you were to follow me, you'd be like, dude, why the heck are we following that guy? Right? Because I'm not perfect either. So the best thing I can do is point us to Jesus. And this list of eight things, these these are character traits that if we begin to build them into our psyche as a filter for how we interact with the world, we're getting somewhere. And even though we're not perfect, and even though we mess up and we fail, God's grace covers all that, and then the rest of our life is to his praise and to his glory. Let's make that our game plan. Learn to make choices that honor God. Let God begin a work in you. And he's not going to leave you hanging. He'll see you through. He started a work in you, and he'll see it through into completion. But don't jump off the train. He transformed Paul's life. He transformed uh, his friends in Philippi, Lydia, and the slave girl, and the jailer's family. Choosing Jesus, it's never failed to fulfill people. It's a daily choice. And my question for all of us is, what is your game plan? I just want to pray for us this morning as we move on. Let's pray. God, you are good. And in the this, this song uh, that we sang a little earlier, said you are good and you satisfy. You fill us with what we need to get by. And Father, as we 
We face life. I think most of us, our game plan is to have a good life, but um, it's easy for us to not have a God life. Lord, help us to transition those good things. Every good and perfect gift comes from you. And so let's take those things and, and not give ourselves credit or, um, you know, some organization credit, but let's give you credit for the good in this world. And let's begin seeking you with our lives. May those eight things be a good filter. Thank you so much for beginning a good work here at Venture Church. Thank you for the, the few of us who used to meet in a living room. And, and I thank you for the dozens of us who meet in a, an elementary uh, school cafeteria right now. And, and I praise you in advance for the dozens more who will praise you and lead our city to your light in whatever venue you have for us in the future. Whether it's our houses and small groups, whether it's in parks and in our offices and in our neighborhoods. I pray that our game plan is to bring you glory. And I pray for anyone in this room right now who may be seeking you, that you can help them see the good work that you do in other people's lives, and it will point them to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.